Hello, everybody, and welcome to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. John and I met in a religion class in Oxford, England. Actually, we were in a pub. Well, yeah, but my point is you like to think deeply. And you love sports. I do. Marsha doesn't just love sports. She's a cross-country coach and in her alma mater's Hall of Fame. We're Team Shoot, and we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On this show, we go beyond sound bites and highlight reels. We're going deep. Let's do this. Today on Going Deep, sports in the 21st century, we're going deep with a very special guest. We're pleased to welcome New York Times columnist Joe Nacera, who's joining us from Southampton, New York. Joe's resume includes times with Newsweek, Esquire, GQ, and Fortune magazines before joining the New York Times in 2005. Joe's background was based in finance and business, and he joined the New York Times as a business columnist. Then in 2011, started writing about the business of sports some, and then things changed specifically the business of the NCAA. And Joe officially jumped to the sports section of the Times in 2015 as the sports business columnist and recently published a book written with co-author Ben Strauss called Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. Joe, welcome to Going Deep. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Really uh, looking forward to this. Joe, if you can... Take us through your transition into the world of sports from a background in finance and business. Well, uh, you know, uh, sports, not just college sports, but obviously professional sports, is in fact a big business. And um, even before I was writing about the NCAA, I would occasionally dabble in columns about, for instance, um, the Big Ten Network, and when that first started up, and their battles with Comcast mm-hmm. um, about getting carriage. And I'd write, I wrote the occasional story about the business of professional football. So it's not that much of a stretch um, for someone like me who's always been interested in sports. And so as a business writer and a business columnist, I would occasionally gravitate towards sports columns. Um, what's different, of course, is that... Um, when I started writing about the NCAA, I was, I was no longer a pure business columnist. I was a, an op-ed columnist at the New York Times, which gives me a lot more leeway to write about anything I want. Mm-hmm. And although certainly the business of college sports has been a really strong area for me, I've written, you know, I, didn't, I got interested in college in, in these, this set of issues for reasons that were not business-related, but much more related to um, the restrictions and the issues surrounding uh, what college athletes were and were not allowed to do uh, by the NCAA. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in 2011, and I remember reading one of your columns. It was about a player who 
the NCAA was investigating, and it was one of the ridiculous stories that we all know too well now. And I contacted you about that story, and I told you you ain't seen nothing, you know, until right. you look at the Devin Ramsey case. Right. And I, I wonder, you know, and then you really got involved at UNC um, and really looking at that case, and I wonder how that experience shaped your attitude and your perspective. Like you said, it's not just about business. It's a, it's about a justice issue. Right. Um, I've been, (laughs) I've been told that I'm really good about writing about rich people and I'm really good about writing about poor people. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, as a business columnist, you know, I've written about Boone Pickens, you know, a a, a multi-billionaire oil man, and I've also written about lots of people who got kicked out of their homes during the foreclosure crisis. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I have a, it's a side of me that really uh, wants, uh, that, that cares about social justice issues, that mm-hmm. cares about people having their rights. And, 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 uh, and, and the NCAA played, you know, really right into that. When you think about it, it's full of rich people, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, Mike Krzyzewski, who makes $10 million, or Nick Saban, who makes $7.2 million, or Jim Harbaugh, who makes $5 million. And it's full of poor people mm-hmm. who are primarily um, the college football and men's basketball players who are under the thumb of the NCAA and under the thumb of their universities and their coaches and their programs. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, when I first got interested in it, uh, I was drawn to it by these what I viewed as these cases of injustice um, um, starting with uh, UConn freshman Ryan Boatwright, who was ineligible be- to play because his mother was being investigated, which just outraged me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Devin Ramsey, who was uh, lost his uh, eligibility because the NCAA had ruled him academically ineligible, even though the North Carolina Honor Court found that his uh, crime, such as it were, was so insignificant, such a nothing thing, that they weren't even going to take any action at all, mm-hmm. um, and basically proclaimed him innocent. And then on and on and on it went. You know, the the graduate student uh, who tra- who went to the University of Alabama Birmingham and who wasn't able to play because Coach Phil Martelli at St. Joe's said he couldn't. Mm-hmm. The um, I mean, which is just like, how can that be happening? The, the freshman at, on the Harvard women's basketball team who wasn't able to play her entire freshman year because the NCAA didn't understand the context of a, of a test every kid in Britain has to take at the age of 15. Yeah. Um, the, the case of Shabazz Muhammad in, at, at UCLA who wasn't being allowed to play because he was being investigated by the NCAA and the boyfriend of the investigator on an airplane said, we're going to get him, he's dirty. Three months before the investigation was supposed to be concluded. Mm -hmm. Um, So you just see thing after thing after thing, and then you start to look into their history, and you learn about uh, both, uh, you know, its it's history as an organization that really did trample on rights, um, not just for players, but for coaches as well. Uh, You learn about court decisions that... um, if they'd gone the other way, would have given a measure of protection to the players. And you just, you know, I started down this path, and, 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 you know, one thing I've said a fair amount recently in the past month is this book has, has, you know, I've made the rounds on the book publicity is, you know, as causes go, this is not gay marriage. This is not something that affects 
you know, a large segment of the population. It affects a small segment of the population. But the reason people like me get involved in it is, is because it's just so hard to believe that here in America in, in 2016, an organization can do things that seem so fundamentally un-American. Mm-hmm. Well put. <laughs> Very well put. Was, with your position at the New York Times, talk about your sense of perhaps responsibility that you have for telling these tales. You're in a unique position of power, and I think it was Falstaff who said the pen's mightier than the sword. You've made a difference, and you're making a dent in this with your position from the New York Times. Well, that's awfully nice of you to say. Um, you know, most of the time, uh, no matter where you're writing from, you feel like you're you're whistling in the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I guess, the way I would characterize it is this: um, I am part of a vanguard um, that helped bring these issues to the fore in a way that they hadn't before. Mm-hmm. Taylor Branch, I would include as part of that vanguard with his famous Atlantic article, "The Shame of College Sports," and there have been others. But you know, one of the things that we did was we brought these issues to a different audience an audience that was outside the audience of rabid college right. uh, sports fans, an audience of, you know, bi-coastal elites, if you want to call it that, um, who had never really spent a lot of time thinking about this before. Mm-hmm. And secondly, um, I feel that as I was writing about this, other journalists in the sports world started picking up the beat and started to question the NCAA and the things they did in a way that they never had before. And so the NCAA, which had always been kind of on a pedestal, and people just naturally assumed that if they said something was good, then it was good, and if they said something was bad, it was bad, suddenly people no longer um, assumed that. And mm-hmm. to me, the greatest case of this ever is Jerry Tarkanian, the case of Jerry Tarkanian, um, where... You know, his entire career uh, was, he had a shadow over him because the NCAA was going after him and they wanted to suspend him. And the only reason they couldn't was because he was litigating. And so that was held in abeyance. Mm-hmm. And the entire universe of sports journalists across the country just assumed that he was a corrupt, that he mm-hmm. was a corrupt coach who ran a corrupt program. And there's no question, you know, he didn't follow all the rules. There's no question that, you know, he did things that would be viewed violation of the NCAA rules. But because of his litigation, because there was discovery and depositions and and all the things that happened uh, under oath in a court of law, we now know that much of what the NCAA said about him was made up or exaggerated Mm -hmm. and that, Indeed, the head investigator used to call him a rug merchant at the NCAA, for mm-hmm. which there was no consequence. In fact, that person wound up being the uh, the head of, Divi- of you know of Division One governance at the NCAA with a long, long and successful career. Um, so, uh, but that was the '80s, and and no one in the '80s questioned the NCAA. Whereas, if the same case existed today. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question that the NCAA's motives and 
uh, modus operandi would be very much in question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's true, and I think we are seeing that more and more. And yet, they're still getting away with lots of crazy things. So, <laughs> well, it's, well, it's inter- you know, they have power. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, uh, they're not afraid to use that power. Um, and people like me and you and Taylor Branch and Sonny Vaccaro and various other people who have been on your podcast, mm-hmm. all we can do is, you know, rattle the cages from the outside. We don't have any power from it with inside. And, and, and within the NCAA, inside the NCAA, there's no yearning for, for radical change. Mm-mm. And there's nobody pushing for radical change on the inside. Uh, and, and we'll get to this later, I'm sure, but, uh, you know, I include the courts in that as an outside force that has dec- and, and fundamentally declined to take on the NCAA. Right. That is, that's true. And the backing of university presidents doesn't hurt the NCAA either. Um, so I wonder, Joe, if we could take just a minute to have our halftime stretch. This is just a time when we... We'd like to hear a little bit more about where your love of sports comes from. And we'll start with a nostalgia question. What was your favorite sport to play growing up? Basketball. Oh. Um, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, um, and we only really had one successful team in the, in the 19, when was I growing up, 60s and, and, and uh, 1960s and late 50s, and that was the Providence College Friars. Hmm. <laughs> and so we all grew up worshiping Vinnie Ernst and John Thompson and Jimmy Walker. And, and then as I got older, Marvin Barnes and Ernie DiGregorio, uh, who were actually local boys. So uh, I, I grew up loving and playing basketball. Um, I was good enough to play high school basketball, but I certainly wasn't good enough to play college basketball. So your glory days ended about uh, age 18 or... Uh, yeah, 17. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. I still will live that night. I scored 13 against West Morris. That's right. Oh, what a night. What a night. (laughs) As you get older, it becomes 15, 18. Macklin's going to think it was 33 before long. And you you dunked instead of of made a layout. That's right. Of course. So if some of those were your heroes growing up, do you still remember Billy Donovan and Rick Pitino in the, I guess, early 80s there at yes, Providence? Yes, now that, um, I was actually older by then. I was probably in my 30s when that team uh, came up. Uh, this is a total uh, sidebar, but the uh, team, the, the, Providence had two teams that went to the Final Four. The 1973 team with Ernie DeGuario and Marvin Barnes was truly a fantastic team, one of the most exciting basketball teams in college basketball history. And if Marvin Barnes hadn't gotten hurt in the Final Four, they might have made the final game, and, and, and which would have been against UCLA. Mm-hmm. That 1986 team with Billy Donovan was not that talented a team. And it really showed you the um, ability of Rick Pitino both to get his players to improve their skills from game to game and week to week, and also to get them to act cohesively as a team mm-hmm. so that they could hide their weaknesses and, exa- and, and accentuate their strengths. It was really it was one of the great coaching uh, performances I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. It really was, and they were a little bit ahead of the curve, too, schematically with the full-court press for 40 minutes of the game and, and kind of went small with Billy Donovan right. and, and, and I think Delray right. Brooks. The... Um, the uh, three-point shot was still relatively new, mm-hmm. 
Um, and Patina was really a trailblazer in understanding how to turn the three-pointer into a weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that when you when you drove down the lane, you looked for the guys in the corner behind the three-point line and, and did that instead of going in for a layup. If you could be a world-class athlete in any sport, what would it be? Tennis. Oh, tennis. interesting. I took up tennis uh, at a certain point in my life, in my late 30s. I realized that I could not play basketball anymore because any time I stepped out on the court, I would get seriously injured. <laughs> and I would no. have to, and I, I, you know, twist my ankle or really hurt my arm, and I wouldn't be able to play for, like, months. And, and I was just terrible. And so mm-hmm. um, when I turned 40, I had a research assistant who taught on the Smith College tennis team. I lived in Massachusetts at the time. And I kept her on the clock three days a week and had her come out and hit tennis balls with me. Oh. <laughs> and, and um, uh, you know, like at lunch hour, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, something like that. And uh, out of that, I became incredibly passionate about tennis. And for about 10 years, I just played as often as I possibly could, That's sometimes great. three and four times a week. And I became moderately good. You can never be as good as somebody who takes it up as a kid ever mm-hmm. if you start as an adult. But I became pretty decent, and I play once a week to this day. Wow, do, that's awesome. With the New York Times, do you get uh, great tickets to the U.S. Open? Uh, no, but my wife works for a lawyer who has a suite. Uh, and so I get good tickets, but not because I'm with the New York Times. That's great. <laughs> well, hey, we're going to take our first break here, Joe, and thank you so much. You're, you're listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, and we are going deep with our guest, Mr. Joe Nocera. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep. And hit, up, hit us up on our website at shoopsgoingdeep.com. And you can subscribe to Going Deep on iTunes and SoundCloud. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century. We're here with New York Times columnist Joe Nacera. During Joe's long career in journalism, he's won three Gerald Loeb Awards and was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize. His previous books include All the Devils Are Here, Good Guys and Bad Guys, A Piece of the Action, and most recently, Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. If we were taking the SAT, Joe, we might say Walter Byers is to student-athlete as Miles Brand is to the collegiate model. <laughs> so yeah. Mr. Byers came up with the term student athlete to avoid workers' comp litigations in the 1950s. Is this when the NCAA went from the good guys to the bad guys? Well, I, I, I think of it as, as a little bit different. Um, I, I think they went from impotent to mm. powerful mm. once he took over. So, you know, they'd actually been in, the NCAA has been in an existence since 1906. But it was generally a toothless organization. And then in 1951, Walter Byers, who was then 29 years old, former sports writer, working in the back office at the Big Ten, was named the head of the NCAA. And the first thing he did was he convinced every other school to not play Kentucky in basketball for a year. Mm-hmm. as punishment for a uh, point-shaving scandal. So, in other words, he imposed the death penalty on Kentucky mm-hmm. out of, coming out of the gate, and that established him 
and the NCAA is a very powerful entity. Um, and over time, you know, we did a lot of other things. Um, you used to be able to choose the NIT over the NCAA tournament. The NIT used to be much, much more important. Um, and, he, you know, they passed a rule that said if you get in the NCAA tournament, you, you cannot choose the NIT. Um, as a simple example of how he sort of destroyed organizations that got in his mm-hmm. way. He did the same thing with the AAU. But the student-athlete thing was, yes, it was exactly that. It was 1956. Several states were thinking about giving seriously permanently injured athletes workers' comp. Walter Byers came up with the term student-athlete and then um, kind of sent out a memo that said everyone in college athletics has to use this term now always, every time. You cannot just refer to an athlete. It's a student-athlete. And in so doing, he inculcated the idea that they were students, therefore they weren't employees, therefore they, they, um, uh, they couldn't get workers' comp, and, and not incidentally, therefore also they couldn't get paid. Hmm. So if I can go back for just a second, with regards to putting Kentucky on the death penalty for all intents and purposes, obviously the people in Lexington were disappointed, but what was the feel throughout the country was the feel throughout the country here comes walter byers and he's a disciplinarian that's going to do the right thing or was there a feel then that was like this is kind of bs what's he doing no nobody felt that because the point shaving scandal was actually a pretty big deal um uh the 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 players that were involved were very high profile players who had gone on to the pros and in fact um, they were banned from the pros once it emerged that they had been involved in shaving points at mm. Kentucky. They never played pro ball again. So there was a set, and don't forget, this was the era of uh, point shaving at uh, City University of New York, which destroyed mm-hmm. that. That was one of the great powerhouses, and they were never, never the same again after that. Um, so, no, there wasn't, there was a sense, uh, rather, there was a sense that. Um, um, you know, this is something that needed to be done. And my goodness, here's this organization that's coming along. There's this guy that's come along that's done it. That, mm. In the world of college sports, I, there was very little dissension about giving Kentucky the best penalty. And, and you know, really, I mean, Walter Byers was in power until 1986, from 1951. Um, uh, people, fans, never really objected to much of what they did in enforcement, unless they went after your school, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But they did object to the way he controlled college football rights mm-hmm. um, because it meant that they couldn't see their favorite team on TV more than twice a year at most, and often less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that became, uh, when people talked about the excesses of the NCAA, they talked about the way it controlled football rights, uh, whereas on enforcement, the complaint about the NCA was the opposite. It was like, you know, there are still all these scandals, there's still all this bad stuff going on, and the NCA isn't doing anything about it. So, right. um, uh, there was, and, and it was, it was a simpler time. I mean, people did amateurism wasn't questioned then the way it is today. Right, and, and that's how that's how like the Knight Commission kind of had its social capital. Is oh, we need to get tighter on regulation we need to get right. stronger on enforcement and that really resonated with people right the night the night commission um was founded 
because there was a sense in academia that college athletics was getting out of control. Mm -hmm. Um, And also that um, I'm not quite sure of the date on this, but at some point right around then, Dexter Manley, the former um, Washington Redskins Mm -hmm. um, line was he a linebacker or a lineman? He Um, was a lineman who went to Oklahoma State. Right. So he testified before Congress that he couldn't read beyond the second grade level. Hmm. Um, and it was this. It, it had enormous reverberations. This testimony, because he was incredibly popular player in the in in Washington D.C. So all the congressmen and senators knew him and uh, knew about him, knew who he was, admired him. And then to find out he couldn't read was just an astonishment. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that helped spur this idea that um, the academia universities need to, to get control of their athletic department again. Mm-hmm. And that led to the Knight Commission. And, and if you'll recall, the Knight Commission's first set of recommendations revolved around one central idea, mm-hmm. that presidents needed to take control of the athletic department yep. instead of athletic directors. Yep. Now, as it turns out, that has been almost pointless <laughs> right. in terms of trying to stop scandals or, you know, put academic first or whatever. Right. Um, uh, but that was... That was why that all happened. Yeah. Very interesting. As we progress then to Miles Brand, he started the collegiate model. And you argue in indentured that it's like code for maximizing everyone's revenue except for the players. Yes, that's Could right. Could you talk about the collegiate model and sure. is there a place for the for a farm league or why didn't they just develop a farm league? Okay. Uh, those are two very separate questions. So mm-hmm. let me um, let me take the farm league question first because it's pretty simple to explain. Um, baseball and hockey were professional sports before they were college sports, so they evolved with a vast network of minor league teams. The way you got players is you signed them out of high school, you put them in the minor leagues, you groomed them, you taught them the way of your organization, and if if everything played out right, they'd go to the they'd go to the big leagues. Um, in in football and basketball, college sports came first. The pro game evolved from the college game, mm-hmm. and so uh, think of somebody like George Mikan. Um, the you know who who was probably one of the first big name players in pro basketball, but the reason he was a big name player was because he'd been a star in college basketball. Sure. So so it, it was almost a natural. It was natural for um, the pro the pros to to pluck from colleges instead of high schools because the the players all already had. Um, some degree of fame. They'd already been taught the game by coaches uh, more than they would be in high school. And, and so once the system kind of set into place almost by accident, nobody was going to change it because mm-hmm. it was good for the colleges because that meant they get all the best players. The best players weren't going to a farm team because there wasn't any farm team. And it was good for uh, the NBA and the NFL because it meant that they were getting players um, who a had been who gotten good coaching in most cases, um, and and b were already marketable because people already knew who they were. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. And then and so you know people 
uh, often say, well, why don't we just start a, a development league now or have a minor league system now? And the answer is you could certainly do it. But the NBA uh, and, and the NFL really don't have any financial incentive to do it. Right. And the NBA does have a developmental league, but it's really, you know, it's, it's pretty unusual that a developmental player becomes a big-name pro. It's mostly for marginal players uh, or, you know, players who weren't drafted and weren't good enough right. uh, to make a team, you know, out of college who then need to work on their game and, and try and get back to the big leagues. That's a really interesting point because basketball started at Springfield University and the first football game in America was was Rutgers and Princeton. And I guess I'd never thought of how those came up through the college ranks. The Ivy Leagues. Very interesting. uh, Until until the 1950s, the Ivy Leagues, uh, Notre Dame were the dominant dominant football powers. Mm -hmm. And so is it kind of the tail wagging the dog that amateurism – propped up what was already happening and then somehow that concept you know was really a way to protect the streams of wealth that were being generated in collegiate sports and is that what helped public opinion kind of become so entrenched against the idea that revenue generating players at the college level should not be compensated for that um uh, we skipped over the Miles Brand question, which we should probably get back <laughs> oh, to. Oh, yeah, but, let's definitely get back to that. Miles <laughs> um, Brand was the first um, college president to become the head of the NCA, and this also ties in with the Knight Commission and, and, and all of that, um, although it was much further along. Um, the NCA, you know, is part of this idea that university presidents needed to take control. They wanted the university president to, to run the night to run the NCAA. Miles Brand had 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 uh, fired Bobby Knight at the University of Indiana, most famously. He had made some speeches, especially one at the National Press Club, where he, you know, came out with this lengthy agenda for putting academics in the forefront again, and even if it meant subsuming athletics. I mean, I mean it couldn't have said it more clear. Clearly, then when he did become the, the uh, head of the NCAA, he did it. Uh, he really did it in about face, and he became, you know, uh, an extremely commercially minded mm-hmm. president in a way that you know Walter Bias, for instance, had never been. And um, you know, stuff like Pontiac Player of the Game and um, um, a lot of the licensing uh, from the NCAA, uh, a loosening of sort of uh, commercial uh, regulations that uh, impinged on what universities could do in terms of using the likeness and images of the players, you know, um, uh, and, and maximizing revenues. Uh, that all happened on, on his watch, mm-hmm. um, which ended around 2010 or 2011 when he died of cancer. Um, he's a philosopher, and um, uh, he likes, you know, uh, grappling with uh, philosophical issues. And so here you have this issue, uh, unpaid players, uh, revenue-maximizing universities, uh, athletic departments, so how do you justify it? And, you know, he came up with this conceit called the collegiate model. The collegiate model, uh, like the professional model, maximizes revenues uh, around athletics, but unlike the professional model, its players remain amateurs and students first, who are 
playing sports as an avocation rather than a vocation. And that became the justification. Um, and, and Mark Emmert, the current uh, president of the NCAA, very much hews to that model and defends it. Um, uh, and it is, you know, sort of the core concept now at the NCAA. Mm-hmm. I'd also say in your book, in, Indentured, that part about Mao's brand ascension to the head of the NCAA is as fascinating uh, of a section of the book as there is, I think. Well, thank you. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the things about the book is it has this title indentured that makes it sound like it's a polemic sometimes, but in fact, you know, it's a book that tells a story, mm-hmm. and the Miles Brand chapters, or two of them, uh, is one of the best stories in there, I think. Well, I wonder if you could, you know, take the next step. I mean, it's clear there's kind of an organic you know, development and uh, generativity to how this all kind of built on itself. But I'm going to go back to just how has this, what are the conditions that allowed this really counterintuitive idea that revenue generators not be compensated just because of these turns of phrase of, you know, amateurism and collegiate model and student athlete. Those are those are semantics. There had to be some gut feeling that allowed people to say, "Yeah, I'm okay with that." Right. Um, well, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. I um, I think it again goes back to uh, the evolution of these sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in in in, in nineteen twelve or whenever, when Princeton was playing Harvard in football, they really were students. Mm-hmm. You know, they really were students. There was no professional football. Um, uh, there was no place to go after football. So, you know, they they were playing for the love of the, their school and the love of the game. And the coaches didn't get much money. And there, um, there was some commercialism, of course. There always has been in college sports. But it wasn't like it is today. And even, uh, you know, it took a long time before March Madness became a really big deal. Uh, there were many years until, I can't remember, maybe the 1970s, Notre Dame wouldn't play in a bowl game mm-hmm. because it didn't think it was the right thing to do. It didn't think it was right for their students uh, who happened to play football. Um, but but uh, Jay Billis, uh, the former Duke uh, great, who mm-hmm. also who's now, of course, a well-known ESPN basketball columnist, you know, he, he is, as you know, one of the most outspoken on the issues of paying the players and player rights. And, and, and it turns out, he told me, that um, he has always had this set of issues uh, on his mind. Uh, and, and even when he was a student, he was on an NCAA committee, and he, you know, he did things uh, to try and promote player rights. But he, he said, I didn't think about money back then because my coach only made $100,000. Right. It was so. It was a different world. Today, his coach makes ten million dollars, Mike mm-hmm. Krzyzewski, mm-hmm. and the the um, College Sports Inc., as I like to think of it, is drowning in money. And so, whereas once you could sort of say, well, you know, yeah, there's money involved, but it's not so much that you can that you have to insist that the players get a percentage of it. Today. It's impossible to look the other way. It's just, it's in your, the money is in your face. Right. 
And, and I think that's made a big difference in how people perceive this issue. And, and again, it's another one of those cases where it evolved in a certain way that's, that in retrospect seems pretty natural. Uh, and then at the point at which it really became unjustifiable, the NCAA and College Sports Inc. You know, had no financial incentive to let the players participate because they were getting all the money. Right. And I would throw in there that I do think race plays into how people are like, oh, yeah, it's okay. Um, that they have trouble kind of with the concept of largely African-American revenue-generating players being paid at the college level. That there's something maybe unconscious or subconscious about the racialized biases that make this system acceptable to people. Well, I, I, I would, I would not disagree with that. I, yeah. um, there are so many examples. Um, one, which I find uniquely offensive is the line that you hear from time to time that, you know, if you, if you gave the players the money, they'd spend it all on tattoos and bling. Mm-hmm. As yep. opposed to the white, as opposed to the white kid who spends it all on spring break, you know, snorting right. cocaine. I mean, come on. Right. Um, there's a woman's basketball coach who just retired. I'm very sorry. I can't remember her name. But she was quoted as saying that one of the reasons she was retiring is because all her players cared about anymore is their monthly cost of attendance check, which, mm. they, of course, they've been, only been getting for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, well, maybe that's because they actually need the money. Right. Right. <laughs> it, it's interesting that you say that at Purdue this past year when they were talking how they were going to distribute the cost of attendance checks, our representative stood in front of the team and said, now don't go spending all this on bling and Jordans. And a player leaned over and said to me, what the F did he just say? (laughs) And of course, it it was an African-American player. And uh, you're exactly right. The white obliviousness really plays a role in this. You know, another topic in your book that I absolutely found fascinating was the leverage and the power that these conference commissioners have. If you could talk a little bit about that, and let me ask you this question to start it off. Who has more power, Jim Delaney, the commissioner of the Big Ten Conference, or Mark Emmert, the head of the NCAA? Uh, Jim Delaney definitely has more power. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure although does. they both have power stemming from one central fact, which is that they both distribute money uh, to schools. You know, uh, the NCAA uh, does distribute, you know, something like seven hundred million out of the out of the billion they get from March Madness each year to various schools, um, not just the ones that are in the tournament. Although I would note that the ACC is going to get $40 million as a result of their success Hmm. in in this year's March Madness tournament. But no, um, Delaney and the other four commissioners of the Power Five, I mean, they showed their power uh, a couple of years ago when they basically made veiled and not-so-veiled threats that they would leave the NCAA if they didn't get more autonomy because they were tired of being outvoted by the smaller Division One and the other schools. Right. Um, and so, and guess what? They got the autonomy because, you know, the NCAA can't survive without the Power Five. 
but the Power Five actually could survive without the NCAA. Um, and 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 then you know Delaney and and the others have been instrumental in uh, really solidifying the commercial the commercial nature of college sports. Um, uh, you know, they the, the big schools in a Supreme Court decision in the mid '80s won the right uh, to their own college uh, football uh, uh, television. Mm-hmm. So, um, the lost. Walter Byers lost the, his ability to control that. And I will say, Walter Byers was, in fact, a true believer in the amateur idea ideal. And one of the reasons he tried to keep schools from being on TV too much. It's precisely so you wouldn't have these mega, mega, mega athletic departments. Um, it was his way of trying to keep things in some semblance of control. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, you have things like, you know, Roy Kramer, uh, the former uh, SEC uh, chairman, he invents the uh, conference championship football game, mm-hmm. which becomes this huge thing. Jim Delaney uh, is the first guy who figures out that he can have an all – Big Ten network, television network, uh, which now supplies member schools with somewhere between 30 and $35 million a year each. Mm. Wow. Um, and then, you know, the bowl system was completely dominated for years by the Power Five conferences, and they're the ones who, you know, held back against the football playoff system and, um, you know, insisted that, the, that, that they created the – the, uh, the BCS as it uh, existed for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say that the conference commissioners are probably uh, the most powerful five people in college sports. Mm-hmm. So, so it's pretty clear. I mean, we don't have to be rocket scientists to see that they're, when you put together the values and aspirations of a university – and the billion-dollar sports business, you get some moral and ethical disconnects. But e- even with all that, and, and we've certainly been on a steep learning curve in our tenure in, in sports, um, since it really since we started 26 years ago, but particularly the, the years we've been in college football, but we still see the worth of, of, of the collegiate I won't call it the collegiate model, but um, sports at the collegiate level. Um, do you, Joe, after all your work, think it's a lost cause, or do you see the worth of of sports at this level in, and, in uh, college? I find that a difficult question to answer. Um, uh, I there's no question that a person who plays college sports and gets a degree is a highly motivated human being who has learned a lot about life, about discipline, about uh, how to be coached, um, uh, how, to, how to get better, um, how, to manage, how to manage a really difficult schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, get, I get that. Uh, I also get that there are, you know, athletes, who would never get a college education if it weren't for the fact that they were good at sports. Um, But, you know, you'll have campuses of 40,000 people, students that have 1,000 athletes. Mm -hmm. And it does, there's something about 
and, and, and those athletes are important to the university as revenue generators, as a way to keep the university front of mind for many people, as a draw for students who want big-time college sports. Mm-hmm. But I have a hard time with the idea that these thousand people are getting something that is so invaluable that, you know, you have to preserve it even though the other 39,000 don't get it. Hmm. Uh, that, that's kind of where I, 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 I kind of I balk, I balk. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, then, and it's just hard to sort of think through, I yeah. would say. I, I agree with you, and I do think increasingly the good things that we highly valued, the relationships, the mentoring, the, you know, the, the, the young men finding their themselves and really coming into their own, increasingly those things are choked out at the collegiate right. level, um, and you're really, really, really curtailed in terms of the role that you can have in right. a player's life. And, and, and so, you, guys, you guys have a really good example of that, mm-hmm. which is the North Carolina, the original North Carolina scandal, not the current one with mm-hmm. the sham classes, where, you know, John, as I understand it, was basically told mm-hmm. not to talk to the players about the scandal, even though that was the most important thing on their mind, and they were trying to figure out how to deal with it, and they had nobody else to turn to. Exactly. And yet, as the coach, he was supposed to act like, you know, um, somebody who's in litigation with these people, so you can't talk to them. Right. It it was just absurd. Yeah. An almost comical story was uh, Devin Ramsey, the young man who was suspended by the NCAA for life that you had talked about. And Giovanni Bernard, Gio Bernard, who's a running back for the Cincinnati Bengals right now. Well, both of them came to our house for Thanksgiving, uh, the year that Devin was suspended. And the players also were told not, not to, to talk, talk about it with each other. each other. So the coaches weren't allowed to talk about it. The players weren't allowed to talk about it. So imagine how lonely Devin felt. Well, at our dining room table that night, we talked about it. I brought it yeah. up. And yeah. Gio, uh, I'll never forget, Gio turned to Devin and said, I'm so sorry, Devin. I just assumed you had cheated. He said, I just, he said, yeah. you didn't do anything wrong? Man, yeah. I, I just thought you must That's have done something wrong. That was right. a real wake up really moment for us. It really makes you scratch your head. And, and in many ways, the game isn't just what I fell in love with a long time ago. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, I know that you have some ideas about systems for paying players, and some of those ideas are evolving. Could you say a little bit of what kind of reform you think might work? All right. So uh, for many years, uh, I had a salary cap idea, which I actually think is not a bad idea, uh, where each uh, football and men's basketball player would get a minimum salary of, say, $25,000. So it's not, mm-hmm. enough, it's not a lot of money, but it's enough that you can live like a, like, a, like a typical college student. And, you know, part of the problem is that these guys are often the poorest kids on campus. Mm-hmm. And they're also in, a, in, a, in, in what's often an alien culture. So, you know, having some money in your pocket is a good thing. But then I'd have enough left under the cap that the star players, you could go out and offer them more than 25000 And you could say, you know, at Ohio State, we'll pay you 40000 a year. Mm-hmm. And Kentucky might say, well... 
we think you're worth 50 a year for us. And you might decide, well, I like Urban Meyer better than the Kentucky football card, so I'll take the 10000 less to get you know, the kind of coaching that he can give me. You know, it just mm-hmm. becomes a factor in the thinking. And uh, one of the things I've always said is that part of the reason recruiting is so slimy um, is because so much, whatever money that exists is, uh, is going under the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, AAU coaches <laughs> having their palms greased to direct kids to certain schools and so on, and that the whole system would be so much cleaner and better if you took the money from under the table and put it on the table. That's kind of my phrase about that. But um, I, I do think this system would work, but uh, Andy Zimbalist has pointed out correctly, he's a uh, sports economist at Smith College who's very involved in this, and he's actually on the Knight Commission right now. Um, Andy has pointed out that you can't have a salary cap unless you have uh, a union uh, with whom you can negotiate such a cap. Otherwise, it's a, it's a violation of antitrust law. Hmm. Um, and I guess I sort of knew that, but I kind of ignored it. And, and I do actually <laughs> do believe uh, athletes, college athletes need to have an organization that has power that can act on their behalf. Mm-hmm. So, um, And what would that look like? Well, they'd have a seat at the table during television negotiations so that the players could get a percentage of it, for instance. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's, that's the primary thing I think they could, they could do. Also, if they could negotiate a salary cap, um, they could, you know, have a way to insist on better health care or longer health care or lifetime scholarships, or they could negotiate with the NCAA about how many courses an athlete has to take uh, while he's uh, eligible to play. I do think there's something ridiculous about, uh, you know, the age of the full-time student is going. Is You know, there's so many more part-time students, or right. work-study students, night students. And so the idea that an athlete has to be a full-time day student taking a full load while also working 40 to 50 hours on this thing called their, their sport seems ridiculous to me, and it seems like a, a tremendous burden. And the college uh, motto is not always just four years anymore. It's right. That's changing. exactly right. Um, so you know, I if I, if I had an organization, if, if an organization had power, um, you know, there's a lot of improvements that they could make that ought to be made. Um, uh, the, the the second reason I've become less uh, enamored of my original idea is that if you believe, as I do, that the NCA is a cartel. Mm-hmm. an economic cartel that exists in no small part to uh, deprive the labor force of wages, i.e. the football players of getting some money. If you believe that, then um, any, any scheme you come up with that sets national rates for payment, even if it's a salary cap, is still acting under the umbrella of a cartel. Mm-hmm. It, you're still imposing national compensation limits. They just happen to be different ones. Right. So now I'm, I, I don't have all the answers to this yet, but now I do think that, um, you know, uh, the, the NCA should not be in the compensation limiting business. Maybe the universities should be able to make their own decisions. Maybe the conferences ought to be able to decide this for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't... What- I don't know fully what the answer is, and I know there's a lot of potential gnarly issues uh, involved 
uh, having to do with taxes and tax right. deductions and kind of what it would mean for Title IX and so on and so forth, um, all of which I think are solvable. But, but um, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of wrestling, I'm re-wrestling with the question of, of what's the best way to compensate athletes. Well, of all the issues that are out there being discussed, from due process, money from lightness, the transfer rule, long-term health care, concussions, on and on and on, of all the issues being discussed, what reforms are doable? Well, I certainly think uh, the, the, the two reforms that seem to me very, very much within reach and are, and, and possibil- and, and are possibilities are the elimination of the transfer rule mm-hmm. and a lifetime scholarship. And let me talk about each one. Uh, the transfer rule is actually the subject of uh, another piece of litigation, um, and the lawyer has actually told me it's like the simplest case of all time because it's, it's such a classic restraint of trade. The idea that a player can't transfer without sitting out a year and losing a year of eligibility without a waiver from his coach and university is really kind of appalling. Mm-hmm. When you th- and, and, you know, the way I think about this whole set of issues is that, you know, athletes need to have the same rights as everybody else in America and every other college student. Mm-hmm. No other college student can be restrained from switching schools if they want. Even if the school that they're switching from, the place they're leaving, has done an enormous amount for them, has helped them, has mentored them, has, you know, whatever. They can still leave. They can still leave. But in college football and men's basketball, you can't do that. Um, uh, and, a lot, and part of the rationale is, well, we trained them, so, you know, we should, we, we should get to keep them. Well, the real uh, rationale is we don't want that other team to get all of our stuff, our secrets, right. our ideas, and, and our good players. We don't want to have to play against that player. Right. Even if the player's not that good and you don't really want him, you still right. don't want him. Yeah. Right. It's he's, so, he's not good enough to stay on your team, so he's transferring, but he's good enough that you don't want to play against him. <laughs> right. It does That's make right. you scratch your head. It does. Um, the lifetime scholarship seems to me a complete no-brainer. Um, you know, again... Uh, it's something that the university, I think, owes. Um, uh, it's something that the university owes all the players. Um, right. You know, you've given them a lot. You've generated revenue for them, and uh, uh, you, you, you ought to be able to come back and get a degree. You know, if you, whenever you want. I mean, if mm-hmm. you, if you. It yes. didn't graduate because you didn't think scholastics was that important during that part of your life. If you thought you were going to be a pro and it didn't work out, um, if you if you weren't, you know, if you didn't, if you weren't prepared for college, and so that it was an enormous struggle, um, all these, um, all of these uh, reasons um, should not mitigate what the university owes you. Mm-hmm. Sure. And um, and so and not only do I think there should be a lifetime scholarship, I think it should be. And what's the right word to put this? I mean, I think if you if you go to the University of Louisville and you don't graduate, and ten years later you're living in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, you shouldn't have to go back to Louisville to graduate either. There should be reciprocal arrangements that allow you to go to Michigan. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. no reason they couldn't do that. Um, I wanna read this paragraph. I know I've talked to you guys about this before, and uh, I know John heard me 
say this during some remarks recently. Um, but during the second UNC scandal, the sham class scandal, mm-hmm. um, a history professor named Harry Watson wrote a letter to a disgruntled alumni. And to me, this sums up the heart of the issue. Hmm. Um, he says, the deeper problem is that we entice these players to entertain the public and enrich their coaches by performing a vast amount of arduous, dangerous, and unpaid work with the opportunity for free education and a distant chance to go pro as their only compensation. Then we set up conditions which make the education either meaningless or nearly unattainable. And to me, this situation is fundamentally immoral. Hmm. I don't think I've ever seen it said or written better. Mm-hmm. I can say amen to that. Amen <laughs> to the men. Amen <laughs> to the men. Can't, can't, can't we all? Yes. So, Joe, one last question, and you can just do a quick lightning answer. Is the NCAA going to disappear? No. Is that lightning enough? <laughs> <laughs> um, they're not going to disappear because they're, uh, A, too powerful, B, they bring in too much money, especially through March Madness. And C, universities find them useful. Mm. They find them useful for one really good reason, which is they run a good championship, not just in basketball, but in the sports across the board. Mm-hmm. They're, they're a good organizing vehicle for college sports. But secondly, universities like the idea that, um, that there's an enforcement mechanism that's trying to keep the other guy honest. Mm. And so even as much as you might hate it when you're being investigated, you're thrilled when your competitor's being investigated. <laughs> yeah. You know? We've seen that, that's for sure. <laughs> so so yeah. I don't think they're ever – I really think they're here for the duration. And um, people like you and I who are you know, part of this ad hoc reform movement, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the best we can do is just keep poking away at it, poking away at it. Yeah, let me tell you what I'm thrilled about is that guys like you, who are courageous and somewhat fearless, it seems, um, are t- are taking on this system. And whether it disappears or not, I think I'm thrilled that you are trying to keep them honest. So thank you so much, Joe Nasera, for being with us today. You have provided us with a wealth of information, and it's just been a delight to spend some time with you. Well, it's always fun to to, to hang out with you guys, and, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Great. and I, Thank you very much, Yeah, Jill. I have a few takeaways, but the one I'll say is I think after listening to you again, and I, some of this is stuff I've heard and some of this is the first time I've heard, but just um, I think that there is a certain degree to which this system is too far gone <laughs> to kind of salvage the things that we've loved about it. Um, But that doesn't mean that true reform and real fairness and justice can't can't be somehow instilled into the system. That's my takeaway. What about you, John? I I, I pray that you're right. Yeah. What about you, John? Well, I would agree. Just in our conversation here, I learned a few things, even about how baseball and hockey differ from football and basketball and their origins, uh, about the conference commissioners and the power that they have. But I agree with you, Marsha. My takeaway is with all the warts, I don't think that the NCAA is going to go away either. 
And we need to find a way where there is some semblance of justice. And I can't mm-hmm. see for the life of me why there can't be due process, why there, a, a young man can't make money off of his likeness. And I think at one point, Joe, the words you said were, if you just want the athletes to have the same rights that every other student on campus every and other frankly American. every other American has. Yep. And, uh, I noticed. I noticed that you corrected yourself when you started to say student athlete, John. I think that's a big stride forward. <laughs> We're breaking ourselves of that habit. <laughs> yeah, we sure have. Thank okay. you so so it much for fun. being it was with really us. Really fun, guys. Thanks for doing it. Bye bye. We'll you. be in touch. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Well, we have some interesting shows in the queue, and we know you won't want to miss them. We're going to be exploring race and racism in sports, fantasy football, the genetics of competition, and sports economics in the coming weeks. And thanks to WBAA, West Lafayette's public radio station. And a shout-out and thanks to Erica Yon, our sound engineer. Remember, you can follow us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can find us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep and ShoopsGoingDeep.com. We want to thank our growing audience of listeners. We're so thankful that you've decided to go deep with us. We're Team Shoop. We hope to see you next time on Going Deep.